Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us. That means if you've never been to church, if you walked away from church, or have struggled to find a church home, we were started for you. For more information about Collective and how to join us on a Sunday morning, please head to www.mycollective.church. So before I start today, I want to give a huge shout out to CT, who preached last week. He didn't know what I was going to say. He's sitting in the front row. Let's give it up for CT. So last Thursday, CT didn't know he was preaching. Um, In fact, I didn't know he was preaching, but I woke up Thursday with a nasty fever and I was like, it'll break, right? Like, I'll be fine. And so I just kept holding on, thinking I was going to preach on Sunday, and that didn't happen. So I was worse on Friday, and around dinner time, I emailed CT with like a few notes that I read back later that made no sense at all. And I was like, hey, man, we're talking about David. Good luck. And so, you know, when I woke up Saturday, it was a good call. I ended up with bronchitis. CT preached on Sunday, and he nailed it. Uh, If you were here or you listened to the podcast, you heard it. If you were in a collective this week, you know the conversation was so good. And it's not easy to preach a sermon. It's not easy to write this stuff. You'll write between 4,000, 6,000 words. And CT did it in 36 hours, which is incredible. So make sure when you see him today, he's hard to miss. He's wearing a neon green long sleeve. Um, But make sure when you see him in the lobby or the parking lot, give him a high five. If there was something that he talked about last week that spoke to you, let him know. Uh, It's hard getting up here and do this, and usually I give him like three or four weeks to prepare, and last week I gave him 36 hours, and he crushed it. And so make sure to give up CT and give him a high five when you see him today. So last week, uh, and unbeknownst to CT, he kicked off our three-week series called King David. And this whole series is actually a continuation on a series that we started in 2018 called David the Giant Slayer. And so in 2018, we spent four weeks on David and his life leading up to the moment that he became the king of Israel. And so this year, we're going to spend a few weeks digging into what was that life like when he was the king. Now, to be honest, this series does not do David justice at all. I'm just being really honest. It's three weeks. There's no way we can touch on how incredible his life truly was. And so three sermons aren't really going to be enough for us to dig into that to get the full story of him. And so my challenge first is this. If you're interested in this guy, David, if you like his story, if it's exciting for you, you should go home this week and check out First and Second Samuel in the Old Testament. It's great stories. He lives an incredible life. Um, you're going to see stories of great faith. You're going to see a beautiful interaction between David and God. It's awesome. But this series won't scratch the surface barely. And so make sure if this is something you're interested in, check out First and Second Samuel sometime later this week. Read through it. It'll be great. You'll have a ton of questions. Bring them to a collective. Bring them to me. I'd love to answer them for you. And as we've looked at David's life, we've seen that his life is full of defining moments that made him the man that he was. The hero that he was, the king that he was, the God follower that he was. There was the moment when God chose him to become king and Samuel anointed him with oil. There's the moment he killed Goliath with a rock thrown from a sling. There's a moment when he finally becomes king and God calls him to be a shepherd to the people of Israel. There's even a story that we didn't talk about where before David becomes king, he actually sneaks into Saul's tent. He sneaks into his camp and Saul was the king at the time. And he actually has the opportunity to kill Saul and take over his kingdom, but he doesn't do it. Instead, he says that he will not lay his hand against the Lord's anointed, and he walks away without harming Saul. He actually takes his spear as kind of a trophy. And later, when the Israelite army found out what David had done, his legend and his status grew even bigger than before. He was the king that they wanted. These are defining moments. 
In our own life, we have these types of defining moments as well. And maybe it was when you got married, when you graduated from college, when you had your first child, when you got accepted into the job program that had been your dream that you worked so hard to get into, or maybe it's when you moved to a new city. There are moments that have changed the course of your life. They've changed who you are as a person. They're defining moments. But what about the moments that we're not proud of? Because not all the moments that define who we are come from this time of our life that we would choose for ourselves. Not all the defining moments in our lives are ones that we wish would have happened. Not all the defining moments in our life come from good things. Sometimes they come out of our failures, our mistakes, or our sins. And that's exactly something that David ran into. Even though David is considered a hero of the faith, even though he's called a man after God's own heart, David wasn't perfect. And about 20 years into him being king, he had this defining moment that came from a time where he fell short. It came from walking out of alignment with what God, had, what God wanted from him. It came from sin. And in this moment, we're going to read it today, David is faced with three options for how can he can respond to the sin in his life. He can bury it. He can allow it to become his identity, or he can experience freedom. And the same is true for us in our own lives. Scripture teaches us that we all fall short of the glory of God. We all sin. We know that. No one in this church thinks they are perfect. In fact, if by chance you are here and you think you are a perfect person, a perfect husband, a perfect friend, a perfect follower of Jesus, you're definitely in the wrong church because this place is full of broken, messed up, sinful people. But even though we sin, we still get to choose how it defines us. We choose how it impacts our future. We choose how it plays out and who we are as a person, as a friend, as a spouse. That's up to us. And to learn firsthand how we can respond to these defining moments, we're going to look at King David and one of the mistakes that he made. And so about 22 years after David had become king, he was in his 50s. He was no longer the cool kid who killed Goliath. And in those biblical times, 50 was old. He was not young. He was not handsome. He was a king at the end of the road. And during this time, David sends his men off to war. Now, we don't know why David wasn't with him. In fact, we know David was a good warrior and he was a good commander of the army. But in this moment, he actually sends them off without him. The assumption is that he was too old. He just couldn't do it anymore. So he sends his men out and he stays back at home. And so while his army fights, David is at home. And one night he decides to head up to the roof of his castle. And there's two stories about David that everybody knows, David and Goliath and this one. It's the second most famous story that we have. He gets up to the roof and he sees a woman who's bathing. He calls a servant over and he asks who she is and his servant answers, that's Uriah's wife. And as soon as the servant said that, David knew exactly who Uriah was. Uriah was a neighbor. Uriah was a friend. Uriah was actually a commander in David's army. And the woman was his wife, a woman named Bathsheba. And the servant who's with David makes that very clear. When you read the story, he's like, this is Uriah's wife. Like, what wife? Like, let me, let me keep telling you, like, that's his wife. Like, let's make this very clear. But David ignores the most important part of that answer and tells his servant to send her to him. And David knows what he's doing because he knows at this point in his life he's king. No one can tell the king no. And this story, and this is the beginning of a path of bad decisions that we watch David walk down. So Bathsheba comes to David they spend the night together. They probably spend multiple nights together. About a month later, she finds out that she's pregnant. She sends a message to David letting him know that he is the father because her husband, Uriah, is still at war. And this moment is the first moment where David is face-to-face -face with the sin in his life and the consequences that that sin brings. And so David has a choice, right? This is one of those defining moments in his life. Does he do the right thing? 
Does he send for Uriah and tell him that he made a mistake? Does he stand before his kingdom and admit that he took advantage of the very people he was supposed to be caring for? The answer is no. So David concocts a horrible plan that he believes is brilliant, and he tells Bathsheba that he'll fix it. The way he chooses to fix the situation is to hide, to bury his sin, to cover it up, to hide it in hopes that no one finds out, so maybe they can all just move on. So David calls for Uriah to come off the battlefield and give a report about what's going on. And while Uriah is around, he tells him, David tells him to go home to be with his wife because he's fought hard and he's earned the right to lay with his wife before heading back to war. But Uriah is a righteous man. Instead of going home to sleep with his wife, he actually sleeps on the ground outside of the castle gates because he knew as a commander of the army, his first job was to protect David above everything else. The next morning, David finds out that Uriah didn't go home, so he stops him and he asks him again, like, dude, why didn't you go be with your wife? David's clearly dealing with a guilty conscience, so he decides to keep Uriah for another day, but Uriah says it's not fair for him to go home and sleep in the comfort of his bed next to his wife while his men are dying and being slaughtered on the battlefield. So David starts to panic. Uh, What he does, he actually gets Uriah super drunk, hoping that maybe he'll stumble his way into his wife's bed, but he doesn't falls asleep outside the gates again because Uriah isn't going to spend a night in luxury while his men are dying alone on the battlefield. He's a good man. And so David has to think of a new plan to deal with the situation at hand. And if you didn't think David could do any worse than sleeping with another man's wife, a man who is specifically a friend who is fighting a battle for his own kingdom and then attempting to trick him into sleeping with his own wife to cover up the affair, David decides that the only way out is for Uriah to die. 2 Samuel eleven fourteen it says this. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. Now, Joab is a commander in David's army, the guy who's in charge of what's going on on the front lines. And the letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. It's a death sentence. David signs it and seals it and then hands it to Uriah to go and bring to Joab. Uriah literally delivers his own death sentence and has no idea, but he does it. He delivers a letter because he trusts David. Besides, what would he have to fear? He just spent two days hanging out with the king, and David spent the entire time honoring him and caring for him and telling him how much he loved him. So Uriah isn't suspecting anything. He gives the letter to Joab. Joab reads it and does what the king says because, again, you don't say no to the king And so Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed among several other Israelite soldiers. Just like that, David thinks he has his problem solved, right? That he's buried his sin, that it's hidden forever, that no one will ever find out. And when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what God, or with with what David had done. So there it is. David walks away looking like a magnanimous and wonderful man who's stepping up to care for a widow of a fatherless child. He marries Bathsheba. He believes that he's managed the outcome, that his sin is hidden, or at least that's what he hopes it is. But if you know this story, or maybe this feels a lot like your own life, you know how this plays out. When we choose to hide our sin, we actually create a prison inside of ourselves where our sin can hide, and we just hope and pray that no one finds out, but it eats us alive. And some of you feel that way right now. There's sin in your life that you have tried to ignore, but you can't hide it. 
right? That's what you're trying to do. You can try to hide it. You can try to bury it. You can try to make sure it disappears. Even David, who could control everything in his own kingdom, couldn't make that sin go away. It won't stay hidden. It keeps you up at night. It comes out in how you approach your relationships and how you approach your trust. It comes out in your sex life. It impacts everything that you do because the truth is we can't hide our sin. We can't kill our sin. We can't ignore it. Luke 8, 17 says this, for all that is secret will eventually be brought into the open and everything that is concealed will be brought to light and made known to all. You can't bury it. You can't hide it. Eventually, it will be brought to light. It's inevitable. At some point, you will have to come face to face with the sin in your life. And that's exactly what happened to David. David, who could control everything, still had to face it head on. Eventually, a prophet named Nathan scheduled a meeting with David to confront him and his sin. And so Nathan gets time with the king, and he actually uses this hypothetical story to kind of confront him. And so Nathan explains in this hypothetical story that there are two men. One was rich and one was poor. And the rich man owned a ton of sheep and cattle. The poor man only had one little lamb, and he raised it like a family member. The poor man let the lamb eat from his plate and drink from his cup. He cuddled it like a baby daughter. He loved that lamb. But one day a guest arrived at the house of the rich man, and instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, which he had many, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it for his own guest. Upon hearing this story, David was furious. In fact, he vowed that any man who would do such a thing would deserve to die and must repay four time or four lambs to the poor man for the one that he stole and for having no pity. And so what Nathan does, he actually turns this story around on David. He says this, he says, you are that man. He says, the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. And then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Imagine the weight of what David is feeling as he says it out loud. As he realizes that he's the rich man in Nathan's story, as he realizes that his sin that he thought he'd covered up is no longer a secret, you know, it had to hit him like a ton of bricks, like the weight of that whole world crashing around him. And he says, I am a sinner. He says, I've disobeyed God, the same God who for over 22 years he faithfully served as king, the God who gave him the strength and courage to kill Goliath, the God who called him a shepherd to the people of Israel and told him to take care of them, to love them, to protect them. And in a moment of pride, in a moment of lust, in a moment of arrogance, whatever it might have been for David, David makes himself bigger than the God he followed and he allowed his sin to bring so much pain into his own life and the lives of those around him. He has sinned against God. And David is called a man after God's own heart, but he still falls short. He falls short as a king. He falls short as a husband. He falls short as a father. And most important, he falls short as a follower of God, of someone who's devoted his life to trusting and obeying and following God's command in his own life. And his response is to cry out and say, I am a sinful man. And this is a huge moment in David's life, just like it would be in anyone's. This is a defining moment, right? This is a life-identifying moment. Does he continue to be the man after God's own heart, or does he become David the homewrecker, David the liar, 
David the murderer, and he's faced with another choice, right? His first choice to deal with sin was he was gonna try to hide it, but he's faced with another choice. How does he respond? What does he do when he's confronted again by that sin that he can't keep hidden? It's the same in our life. We can do two things. You can try to hide it, or you can let it become your identity. When I was a kid, there were these magazines called Disney Adventure Magazines. If any of you guys remember, they're like little half magazines, and they're full of puzzles and games and comic books, and like they had like behind-the-scenes stuff. And so as a kid, like these were a treat in my family. And so often if you had good grades or good behavior, if you're in the checkout line at Safeway, you might be able to convince my mom, like, hey, can we get the next Disney magazine? And so when I was in kindergarten, I was standing in the checkout line at Safeway when I asked my mom for the newest edition, and she said no. And she was like, absolutely not. I was probably being really bad at the time or it wasn't grades. I did very well in kindergarten. But, um, but she said no. And so distraught by her answer, my brother, who's a little bit older than me, we decided that, well, we're going to do what we do, which is we're going to steal it. And so Christopher, my older brother, reaches up. He grabs this magazine and immediately just goes yoink and shoves it right under my shirt. And so my mom didn't see it. And as I stood there waiting in line with this small magazine like outlined under my shirt, I was freaking out. I'd never stolen anything before. I was a good kid. I knew it was wrong, but I felt like it was too late to turn back. So I waited for my mom to finish checking out so we could walk out of the store. So my mom was finishing up her grocery shopping. She still had no idea that I was about to pull off the heist of the century. But the thing I didn't realize was the cashier saw the entire thing go down. And so as we began to walk out the store, he leaned over to tell my mom what I was doing. And so right before there's like freedom, those doors open, you're like, here it is. Like, this is my magazine now. Right before the doors open, my mom pulled me aside and sat me down and asked me what was under my shirt. And I lost it. I just started crying uncontrollably. Snot is pouring out of my nose. I am immediately full of remorse. I know I messed up. I knew what I was doing was wrong. I knew that my mom would be disappointed. And for a brief moment, I kind of assumed I'd end up in jail. But what do you think my mom did? Do you think she called me a thief? Do you think she told me that I was destined to be a criminal for the rest of my life? Do you think she gave up on me in that moment? Of course not. I was just a kid. What she did is she helped me return the magazine. She hugged me. She told me she loved me and taught me that stealing was wrong, which I already knew, but she made sure I definitely understood it in that moment. But not one time during that interaction did I feel like my identity was going to be tied to that mistake for the rest of my life. In fact, I can almost guarantee my mom will be at second service today and she does not remember that story at all. And listen, I understand that I was just a kid in this story, so it's really easy to let me off the hook, but why does that matter? Why is it that when we become adults, we let our sins define who we are? Why do we let that become a piece of our identity? We might not find ourselves in situations exactly like David's, and maybe we do, but we can all relate to this idea that we will fall short. We can all relate to this idea that there will be sin in our life. We will disobey God. We will hurt other people. But why do we let our sin define who we are? Why do you do that? Like, as you struggle with that, why do you let your sin in your own life define who you are? Why do you let it be a piece of your life, an identity option that you have? I see this all the time at Collective. I meet a new person, and one of the first things they want to do is tell me about the sin they have in their life. And I don't really know why this happens outside of the fact that I meet people time after time that they believe that their sin is their identity. They'll introduce themselves and they'll immediately say, I'm divorced. Or they'll say, I've ruined every relationship I've ever had. I drink too much. I use Tinder to hook up with random women, whatever it may be. And person after person that I bump into has decided that their sin is their identity. Like that's the one piece of information that everyone needs to know about them because that's who they've become. It defines who they are. It's like it's a new name for them. Maybe some of you feel that way. 
You think you are your divorce. You think you are your affair. You think you are your addiction. You think you're the lies that you tell or the pain and brokenness that you experience, and that's all. But when you choose to be your sin, when you choose to take that on as your identity about the most important thing you share with people or the thing that you feel like you need to spell out before anything else, when you choose to take on that sin, you refuse to let God show you what redemption looks like. You refuse to let God into your life to buy you back, to purchase that identity back from you and say, I'll take that on so you don't have to be that person. And I think it's an ego thing. To be honest, I think it's because we believe that our sin is just too much, too much to be forgiven, too sinful for grace. And so you decide that you are just a sinner and that becomes your identity. And you live in that place and you function in your place in that place and you try to build relationships out of that place. You try to work out of that place. You try to do your whole life based on this identity of this brokenness that you have in your life, this way that you fell short. But the thing is, there's a third option, right? We see this in David's story. We see option number one, he tries to bury it. It doesn't work. Option number two, he cries out, I am a sinful person, right? He's essentially assuming that identity as his own. But there's a third option that David gets to experience that every single one of us can experience as well. And so you can try to hide it, you can let it become your identity, or you can let God set you free with no strings attached. Proverbs 14, 9 says this, fools make fun of guilty, but the godly acknowledge it and seek reconciliation. Now, what's really cool about this verse is Solomon, who wrote this, is one of David's sons. To make it even more complicated, Bathsheba is is his mom. A whole other story for another time. But Solomon is this guy who ends up becoming king. He's the second wisest person to ever live outside of Jesus. So he knows a thing or two. And he says that godly people will acknowledge their sin and seek out reconciliation from the people that they hurt, from God. They don't try to hide their sin. They don't let it become who they are. They face it head on and they seek out a fresh start. And that's exactly what David received. So we have all these stories about how wonderful David is, but of all the stories we could tell, this is really the one that changed his life forever because it wasn't that he did everything right, it's that he did everything wrong and yet he still experienced freedom from God. And this is what it says, continued in 2 Samuel 12, 13. When David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord without missing a beat, Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. Within moments of this crushing reality that David has screwed it all up. Years of faithful obedience. He's he's thrown it all away because of ego and sin and pride. Within moments of becoming confronted by the sin in his life, there's forgiveness. God forgives him. Nathan is the person who represents that. And the reason why is because that's just what God does. Does it make sense? It doesn't mean that people still aren't hurt. It doesn't make it all go away. But there can still be redemption. There can still be forgiveness. John 3, 17 says this, God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus didn't come to identify you by your sin, but to save you from it, to give you freedom, to give you peace, to give you an identity that's found in God and not in your mistakes. While that might sound too good to be true, it is. It is. It doesn't make sense, right? That's grace. Grace is too good to be true. That's what makes it grace. David didn't deserve it. He received it and it brought him freedom. And there were still consequences for his sin. If you go back and read, you'll know the rest of his life, he dealt with the repercussions of this sin, but it didn't become who he was. In fact, most of us, when we think about the story of David, we think about him as a king or killing Goliath or a man after God's own heart. We rarely identify him based on this sin because there was freedom. 
If you keep reading the story, you're going to see it. Like, yes, there are repercussions. Yes, there is pain. Yes, he continues to deal with that. But it does not become who he is. He didn't have to become his sin. He could face it head on, seek out reconciliation, and experience freedom from that. Later on in David's life, he actually writes about this freedom in Psalm 32. And this beautiful, it's actually a song uh, or a poem. And this is what he writes. He says, oh, what joys, joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those who record, whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. And I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Don't you want that? Like, don't you want to experience that forgiveness? Don't you want that guilt that you've been carrying around that you've allowed to become your identity to be gone, to have that sin put out of sight? And the only way that's possible the only way that we see that happening in this world, because right, the world tells us to bury it or become it. The only other option of freedom comes from Christ. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, the biggest defining moment in your life is whether or not you, should, whether or not you can accept that grace that Jesus has to offer, to release the sin that you've tried to hide, to put your faith in him. Scripture teaches us to repent. It means to turn away from our sin. It doesn't mean to hide it. It doesn't mean to pretend it's not there. It's saying you come face to face with that and you decide I'm walking in a different direction. Right? Scripture doesn't teach us that it all magically goes away and it, you know, it doesn't impact us in any other part of our life or our relationships or our friends or our family or our jobs. It's saying we actively choose to walk away from that lifestyle. Scripture teaches us to get baptized. Baptism is the burial of your old self. It's a symbolic death to the life you were living and the raising up of a new self, of a new person who is free and clean and new. And that's the defining moment that so many of you are searching for as you battle the sin in your life and the identity in your life. It doesn't mean sin, doesn't mean you won't sin again. It doesn't mean you'll be perfect, but it does mean your identity isn't found in your sin, but in freedom that Jesus came to offer. In the 1960s, there was a musical called The Man of La Mancha that was based loosely off of Miguel de Cervantes' novel, Don Quixote. And in this version of the story, Don Quixote walks into a bar and he meets a woman named Aldonza Lorenzo. And Aldonza is a barmaid. She's a prostitute. She's a woman who has been beat up and abused. She's the lowest of low in their society. But when Don Quixote sees her for the first time, he actually immediately falls in love and gives her a new name. He calls her Dulcinea. This means sweetness because that is how Don Quixote sees her. And when Don Quixote describes Dulcinea, he says that her rank must be at least that of a princess since she is my queen and lady and her beauty is superhuman. Since all the impossible and fanciful attributes of beauty which the poets apply to their ladies are verified in her. He's saying everything that any person's ever written about women, she tops every single one of them. He says, her hairs are gold, her forehead Elysian fields, her eyebrows rainbows, her eyes suns, her cheeks roses, her lips coral, her teeth pearls, her neck alabaster, her bosom marble, her hands ivory, her fairness snow, and what modesty conceals from sight such, I think and imagine as rational reflection can only a soul not to compare. 
So here's Don Quixote falling in love with this woman saying she's the most beautiful and fair and incredible woman that I've ever seen in my life. But she's a former prostitute turned barmaid. She wears the pain and brokenness of her life in her eyes and in her soul, but not to Don Quixote. Through the whole story, Don Quixote speaks of his love for Dulcinea. He always ends up back at the bar expressing his love to her, saying that he's going out on these valiant adventures to protect her, to defend her honor. And his goal is to show her that she truly is Dulcinea, that she's sweetness. But Aldonza doesn't want any part of it because that's not who she believes that she is. She believes that she is her sin, her past, and her brokenness. And that's become her identity. That's how everybody knows her in that town, and that's how she lives her life. Eventually, Don Quixote passes away, and Aldonza doesn't go to the funeral. Walking into the bar where she works, Don Quixote's sidekick actually informs her of his death, and she's struck with grief because even though Quixote might have been a little bit crazy, he saw her differently than everyone else. As the sidekick left the bar, he said goodbye to Aldonza one last time, but before she could leave, she corrected him and said, my name is Dulcinea. It was in Don Quixote's death that she realized that maybe she was worth fighting for. Maybe she was beautiful. Maybe she was sweetness. Now we're going to sin. We're going to fall short in our life. That's just the reality. If you try to be perfect, it's just not going to work out for you. But how you respond to that sin is up to you. You can hide it. You can bury it, you can pretend that it never really happened. You can let it impact every, every aspect of your life and just not really clue people into what's going on. Or you can let it become your identity. You can become your mistakes, you can become your sin, you can become your brokenness, or you can let God take all of that away. You can let him give you an identity that's beautiful, that's sweetness, one that's full of grace, one that's full of forgiveness, one that's full of freedom, and one that just sounds so good. But the thing is, just like David's story and just like our own lives, that is your choice you are going to mess up and you're going to have to come face to face at some point. The good news though is that God came to offer that freedom and that forgiveness that only he can give so we don't have to carry that burden, that, that identity anymore. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. Um, to be honest, thank you that we get to see a story about David where he's not perfect. Uh, it can be really hard um, reading stories about these people who are heroes of the faith and conquered giants and seemingly made every single decision right. And God, when we compare that to our own life, it just doesn't feel the same. And so to see David as a human, someone who messed up in a really big way, someone who tried to handle it in the wrong way, but someone who also got to experience freedom and forgiveness from you, God, we know that we can relate to that. God, I don't know uh, identity-wise what people here are carrying right now, God, whether that's from them or maybe a family member or a past experience. But God, what we do know is that everything you tell us that you see us differently, that you don't want us to be identified by our sin. You want us to be identified by the freedom that you offer us, by the grace that you offer us, by the love that you offer us, by the redemption that you give us. So God, I just pray today as we head out this week and we, we bump into that reality of our sin, um, God, that we don't try to hide it. God, that we can face it head on. It's not easy. God, that we don't let it become our identity for the rest of our lives, that we're always that person that, based on that sin that, that is either currently in our life or 10 years ago in our life. But God, that we can be a child that you love, 
child that you've redeemed, a child that you've offered grace to. God, it doesn't make any sense, but man, do we want it. God, thank you for the ways that you love us and care for us, the fact that you see us as sweetness even though we're not. God, we thank you and love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.